Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, and this podcast is for investment professionals only. The world of passive investment has enjoyed a glorious decade. Assets have flooded in, following impressive returns, all delivered at a fraction of the cost of actively managed funds. But it's not as simple as that. And as the market has matured, the debate has intensified over the relative pros and cons of tracking an index or handing money over to portfolio managers to try to outperform the broader market. And it matters more than ever right now. Market dynamics and monetary policy are shifting. Are we witnessing what might be the peak of the passive bull run? If so, what will passive providers need to do to keep up? How should active managers seize the moment? And how should investors best incorporate both in their portfolios? Well, I have a flock of fidelity experts joining me in the studio today to answer those questions. Nick King, head of ETFs. Nick, um, what do you reckon has been the most exciting development? in this market? So I would say it's the sheer scale of flows into the passive products. So flows over the the decade from 2007 to 2017 were almost $3 trillion. So huge sums of money. Not to be sniffed at, and you're delighted with it too as head of ETFs. Absolutely. Uh, Sonia Loud, head of equity, is here as well. Sonia, there's been a huge focus of late on the costs of active management. Uh, Has it been tough as an active manager recently? I think it's fair to say that, yes, it has been tough, um, although I would say that the debate has been rather one-sided because um, obviously active is not only about the cost angle, but more you know, in terms of what the product really is is producing for the end investor. And as such, I would hope that the debate going forward is more granular and is really looking at what the net return is that each product can contribute to the asset allocation. And a granular debate is what I expect we'll be having uh, in this discussion as well. Marty Dropkin, hello to you, Head of Research for fixed income. I want to know, is the active and passive argument a daily debate on the fixed income floor as well? It's less so than it would be in an equity world. And it's because uh, in in fixed income, the active-passive debate is more of a continuum. Uh, There's a range of of topics that we can talk about. It's about 10% share of passive uh, in the fixed income side, but it's also a trickier thing to manage, uh, to, to actually calculate. Okay. Finally, David Buckle is here as well, Head of Investment uh, Solutions Design. Now, David, as somebody who uses both active and passive in tailoring investment products to clients' needs, um, have you noticed a change in attitudes amongst clients? Yeah, the key one is the attitude isn't active versus passive, it's low cost versus high cost. That, that's the driver of the flows into passive. So perhaps we'll hear a little bit more about that. Well, welcome to you all. Um, let's talk first of all about um, the, the context here. Nick, let me come to you. You're the passive guy in the room, if I can put it like that. You described the, um, the incredible growth of uh, passive in, um, in recent years. Um, it's a very agreeable market backdrop, though, that has supported um, the, um, uh, the passive um, products. Give us a flavour of how well it's done over recent, um, recent times. Taking equity markets as an example, the MSCI World Index has returned nearly 12% per annum from 2009 to, to, to now. So when returns from beta are so high, um, it's, it's easy for alpha to be forgotten. And then in addition, the, the correlations between stocks over this huge bull run have also been very high, making it fairly difficult for active managers to, to generate alpha. So we're doing very well, almost without trying. Indeed. And I I think on top of that, regulatory change is clearly 
also providing a, a, a tailwind for passive investing, placing a greater scrutiny on, on costs and transparency. So those two things coupled really have uh, been, been the perfect environment. But the environment is changing, isn't it? And it can't last forever. Um, Sonia, coming to you, um, the tectonic plates in markets are shifting. You hinted at this. Um, can you set out the new landscape that's emerging? Now, we, we don't want to sound like we're talking our own book here. Fidelity is a largely active house. But are there sunnier times ahead for active managers? I would think so. And I think it's important to understand what actually has led to this tremendous performance profile for passive, i.e., you know, what has been the driver of beta over the past couple of years. And I think here in particular, it's worth mentioning the um, uh, unprecedented central bank support that actually has led to return dispersion being extremely low for global equity markets to have such a great annual performance. And as such, the big question mark, if we are really heading from quantitative easing towards quantitative tightening, is that finally the backdrop that will lead to higher return dispersion, which obviously is a much better backdrop for stock seeking, for active stock selection. And we would believe that actually, indeed, this is what, what is happening. And Could I just jump in there? I think yes, it's an do. extension of Sonia's point. Um, the, the fact that it's cost which is driving this is also affected, affected by the level of interest rates. If interest rates are at 5%, it's less of a worry if you're paying an extra half a percent for your fees on your product. If interest rates are zero, it's hugely more impactful. So it may well be that the interest rate environment also drives the the adjustment of pressure on fees. Nick, the question posed by this um, podcast is, has passive peaked? Uh, Would you agree with that? So I think there's still scope for for passive to continue to grow, particularly in in, uh, fixed income markets where the the level of passive assets isn't as high as it is within equities. But I would also agree with my my colleagues that, um, you know, given that we have had this tremendous bull run with valuations being fairly high right now, I I think that that this is is the, the type of environment in which uh, active investing can clearly add some value. So the, the the flows will possibly slow down somewhat, I think. And Marcy, what about um, the bond market? Because we've got uh, a lot of different things going on here. How, how is it going to play out in, in, in your world? We, there probably is scope for more passive to, to appear in the fixed income world. But we do view it as a continuum. And if you break down fixed income by asset class, I think there's certain asset classes which are much more prone to uh, passive type funds. Um, there's certain asset classes picking up on what Sonia talked about, about uh, dispersion on the equity side, on the stock side. The same phenomenon will exist on the credit side, we think, as rates start to rise. We'll start to see credit dispersion. And in an asset class where downside protection is really what you're looking for with asymmetric returns, that idea that we have to avoid the losers becomes that much more important. Um, and that's where you know that's where the active side really kicks in because you just can't do that if you're if you're buying an index exactly and and indices in fixed income are quite a different beast to equities. Yeah, it's almost a four-letter word in fixed income. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we, we yes, my maths. I'm just trying to spell out <laughs> indices, but almost a four-letter word. Almost. I thought you were meant to be good at maths. Uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't tout that. Um, but you know, fixed income has become much more. Uh, uh, it's a benchmark agnostic kind of asset class right now, and particularly when you see the rise of total return and asset return mandates, central bank mandates that are pushing on those particular areas, benchmarks become irrelevant almost. And so the idea of trying to outperform a benchmark becomes a non-issue. And that's why I talk about this continuum of active versus passive. I think David talks about lower fees. That's clearly an issue in fixed income. Uh, That's probably rates-driven as well. It's also just market-driven. But, you know, I think as we leverage our research base across the entire continuum of of, um, funds that we run, 
it becomes that that becomes more the question, I think. And, and actually, how passive is passive in terms of? Um, there's a bewildering number of indices, uh, Nick, in, in equities. Um, you're still having to make a choice there. There is, you know, there is no binary. It's either active or passive, is it? Is there? Yes, I I agree, and I wouldn't say that what we've really experienced is just a shift from from active to passive products. It's it's actually an unbundling of of exposures. So institutional clients, rather than uh, historically investing the, the majority of their assets passively are, are now looking to to separate their, their allocations to beta, to style risk, um, factor risk, and also to more idiosyncratic alpha. So I think it's just, just an evolution of, of what historically was classified as alpha has now been separated into different types of, 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 of risk. David, um, standing back a little bit, um, what is the case, the academic case, if you like, for passive investing? Yeah, the, the standard one is based on two things. Firstly, that the because the active managers are trading amongst themselves, the average performance of the active management community must be zero. Uh, and then the, the academics went on to study if that was empirically true, found some results related to the US. Uh, and then the pushback was, ah, yes, but that's the average manager. What about a good manager? And the academics then pushed back and said, well, they can't be persistent because you can't have in the long run negative performing managers. So in the end, everyone must be zero. They did some more empirical studies, showed there wasn't much persistence. The point that those miss... So far, we're keeping a lot of academics in work, it seems. Indeed, and I'm sure we will in the future, because the point that's being missed here, which is the next area I'd like to see for study, is but there would still be a role for active managers if an investor felt they could time their investments into actively managed products. And there they would explain that then. Yeah. So let's supposing there isn't any persistence in, in active management, but you know, as an investor, when the good period is going to be for a particular investor, for a particular fund, then you would say, I'm going to now enter that fund with an intention of exiting that fund. So there's an active decision that's going on on the part of the individual investor. Correct. I'm going to give this fund manager my money or another one. Correct. But that is quite a skill. Uh, multi-asset uh, teams do that. But um, are you expecting individual investors to be making that? Uh, they already do. And, and the point is, Rich, in terms of is there a role for active here, a case for active, is it, it's not a matter of whether they are good at it or not. It's a matter of whether they perceive themselves to be good at that. And then they would naturally have demand for active funds. And Sonia, I'm sure you hear this as well. Um, but David's already touched on one of the criticisms of, of that research. Yeah, I think a part of the support for passive obviously has been the failure of some active managers to perform. Although I think the, the whole argument has been led rather one-sidedly by the US market. Because what we have seen, if you look more in, into detail, then it's been particularly the US fund managers and large caps in particular that have had a horrific time over the past couple of years. Yet, this is one of the most popular areas for active engagement, i.e. investors love to own their actively managed U.S. funds. With these managers struggling so badly, it has become a more one-sided, oh yes, active cannot perform, rather than its U.S. active managers. And, and that's because the market itself has done so well. There's been extraordinary beta and, and not much dispersion. Yeah, the, the leadership has been extremely narrow. The U.S. market has been the worst in terms of return dispersions, the, the lack of volatility and a very, very narrow leadership. As an active manager, if you do, didn't own the 10 leading stocks, you had no chance whatsoever to outperform. But, Yet, but, 
But if you were to go to small caps or better still in emerging markets, say. Exactly. You're hitting on the most important points. It's the it's the cap, it's the large versus mid-small cap, and it's the efficiency of the market. The more efficient the market and the larger your cap spectrum, the more difficult it is to outperform. So you have had large categories around emerging markets, small cap, that actually have delivered positive alpha over that time period. Yet because it's the U.S. market that is the most popular, you have seen this rather kind of broad-based active cannot perform statement. And, and Marty, it's all the harder still when you're making credit selection. What, well, what's interesting is the same phenomenon that Sonia just described exists in fixed income. And if you think about the aggregate fixed income market, you really just needed to own treasury bonds for the last 20 or 30 years. And that would have been you would have been doing very well. You would have had incredibly good returns as the market as rates start to rise. And the market starts to probably look at some lower dispersion, uh, some lower duration asset classes like a high yield uh, asset class, for instance. That's where credit work comes in, and that's where differentiation comes in, and that's where your your need to kind of drill in and understand individual companies really steps up. And Nick King? So I would say it's about the, the combination of, of active and passive. It's using passive instruments where you think the, the markets are very efficient and generating alpha is going to be difficult, and then, and then using the active products where you think there is uh, opportunities for alpha. And actually, it's this combination of, of both passive and active products which um, groups like David's are putting together and actually using those passive instruments in a very active way. What are the dangers of passive? The hidden danger of passive investing is that everyone goes passive and the market will cease to operate. That's an end point we probably won't ever get to. But uh, ex- Explain that, because people would still yeah. be holding um, shares or credit, but um, why, why does that mean it's not working? Yes, yeah, so why would there be a share? Um, if you think the secondary market is there because people want to get in and out of the primary market, they're, they're happy to give money to a company if they think at some point they could get that money back. And um, the secondary market is to do that, is to transfer your ownership to somebody else. If everybody goes passive, there would be no transacting other than someone has retired and wants to sell their share and therefore someone who's trying to save for retirement can then buy the shares off them. But that would be the only transactions. And the notion of uh, daily trading just wouldn't be there anymore. And as a result, there wouldn't need to be a secondary market in that environment, and then that would have an impact on the primary market. If everyone went passive, there is the risk that it would actually slow down the efficient allocation of capital into an economy, which has a feedback loop for investors, because that would slow the lower the long-term returns for investing. Yeah, I guess we we have to go right back to the original purpose of of capital markets. You know why we're here, and you know what what the what we as intermediaries are expected to achieve when we are handed capital and obviously employed in in the in the market. And it's about the the efficiency of markets. It's the price discovery mechanism, but it's the long term impact, obviously the societal impact as well, on what we aim to achieve in improving corporate governance and and the companies we invest in. And this is where the the whole overall ESG complex complex comes in because. Here, clearly, the idea around engagement with corporates plays a much bigger role than what we, we sometimes you know, claim to do in, in normal circumstances. We'll, we'll come to ESG in a, in a moment, but I just want to come back to this idea about the, the role of active management within the, um, within the economy. And I, I guess that the point here, David, is that it's like natural selection that, um, uh, in terms of the efficient allocation, that um, we want um, the companies that aren't performing well, whether it's on the credit side or um, in equities, um, to, to fall by the wayside 
for that continued um, improvement. Well, and the opposite, Richard. So, you know, play a hypothetical situation back in the 80s that w- Microsoft says, hey, we've invented Windows and there's no analysts. So h- how do they get the capital to develop Windows to make it into what it is today? If everyone's passive, the money doesn't flow to them because they're not in the index. So it's more that side of it than than getting rid of the the ones which are no longer wanted. It's just completely static. And and actually, I suppose the danger also on the on the credit side. So if you think about market weighting, it's going to the companies that already exist and are very large. And on the other side, in credit, the companies who are already heavily indebted that are in an uh, in an index that money is flowing to. Well, uh, it, that's that's absolutely right. And I, I think it's also pointing to this this idea that credit is an, it, it's an asymmetric asset class. Uh, you buy a bond at par, at 100, uh, the best you can expect is to get your coupon and get your money back at the end of it. And so in, in a passive world, that's, that's great. Uh, but reality is some companies do default. And uh, some companies take on too much debt, just as you've indicated, Richard. Some companies, uh, something changes with the company. They've decided to make an acquisition, which puts them in a precarious position. And in a passive world, you wouldn't really pay attention to those things. You would just continue to buy the bonds as they sit in the index. Whereas you know, what, what it takes is some research to figure out which ones of these are going to default. And they do default. So if passive is only about a tenth of the market in fixed income, um, it's much larger than that in... Um, equities. Yes, I'd say more more like a third. A third, okay. Um, has the pendulum gone too far yet, David? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, it, it's hard to put a number on it. The pendulum's gone too far when the market stops operating correctly, um, and we, we're clearly not there. Um, in equities, you know, the, the trend is in the direction um, that's already been laid out. I have to say in fixed income, I'm not so convinced. Um, one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet regarding indices in fixed income is the indices in fixed income are what we call constant maturity. That the, the bonds inside them are continually refreshed to keep it at a 10-year maturity. What we're seeing is there's demand for... Um, investors say, well, I know what my cash flow requirements are, and therefore I need to hold the bonds to maturity, but I've no intention on continually extending the maturity. I just need them for the next 10 years, and that's that. So the notion of an index in fixed income is really quite different from the notion of of an index in equities. That's the, uh, the, the, the backdrop, um, I suppose, for us now. Um, what are clients um, thinking about when they're making the decisions about incorporating um, either of these um, approaches? Or it's not either. You talked, Marty, about a continuum. There's a whole sp- uh, spectrum um, of, of different um, levels uh, between the, the two ideas. So, Sonia, from your experience of, of talking to clients. I think what we've experienced is um, a rather one-sided debate for quite some time, which was obviously backed by the very positive um, beta backdrop, which allowed a very strong focus really just on the cost angle, because passive seemed to fill literally or, or fulfill everything that was needed. And if we consider the usual requirements of a client in between risk return and now cost added to it, then obviously it's a triangular relationship that you know was very well helped by the market backdrop on the return side. 
Risk was very nicely manageable as well with volatility coming down, hence a very strong focus. Okay, now let's just drive down cost. If we are right in our forward-looking statement that this is about to change and that the beta return profile will moderate quite considerably, then investors will have to go back to the drawing board to find out how they can achieve the risk-return-cost angle that they have in mind. And what we've been experiencing so far is that um, there's a lot more on kind of net returns, i.e. if there's an active product that actually can deliver the excess return required, then they are well, you know, um, that th- th- clients are happy to see how this fits in the in the triangular relationship of the other two components to make sure that they can achieve actually all of them. So a bit of a move away from just the cost angle to, okay, now let's get realistic on the other two as well. David, this is your bread and butter. Yes. Um, how, how, how does it play out as you design solutions? Yeah, so I think the key point is that the, uh, most of the investors I speak to are really agnostic on the notion of passive versus active. They simply state an objective they're trying to reach and there's a cost restriction to reach it. So they're perfectly happy having a combination of active versus passive. Um, but the, the other element of it, which it might be worth bringing Nick in, is there's often a, a desire to have a particular fund structure, a type. Uh, and hitherto, ETFs have been connected with passive. If you have an ETF, you're passive. Uh, we have a lot of investors who like to use ETFs for other reasons, not because they're passive. And so that's led them to have a passive investment, but that wasn't really the driver. Was it the liquidity instead? Yeah, and the fact it's on an exchange. Nick? Yes, yeah, so uh, many, many clients do do like the convenience of the ETF wrapper. And that's why we've chosen to offer our passive and smart beta products in a combination of mutual fund and, and, and ETF wrappers. Um, but as, as David says, so far, the vast majority of exchange traded products are index tracking products, simply because there needs to be uh, this this requirement for transparency in, in order for the capital markets partners to, to, to provide liquidity on exchange for these products. However, there, there is a marketplace developing for, for active products. And, and that's, a, that's a space that we're going to watch closely. Marty. There's an interesting follow-up on the liquidity angle, particularly within fixed income, which which historically has been a less liquid market. Um, and when you think about ETFs and and the bonds that go in ETFs, and there's a, there's a whole industry now to try to track which bonds are sitting in ETFs and which ones aren't sitting in ETFs, and and the market's trying to figure that out. Um, that it, it brings back that whole continuum of active and passive into into the forefront as well, which is you know is it active? Is it passive? Is it actually passive if it's sitting in an ETF and everybody's already trying to game the system to figure out which bonds to buy. And the answer is? <laughs> the answer is it, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, Sonia, you brought up ESG, environment, social uh, governance um, uh, questions, stewardship. First of all, before we talk about um, passive, um, this is a, a, a very much more a, a, a important um, aspect of investing um, nowadays than it was in, in time gone by. Um, your argument, I assume, would be that um, only through active can um, people engage with the companies to, to try and bring about change. Overall, we are now witnessing much bigger demands towards us as, a, as the asset management industry to consider more societal issues in our kind of selection process so that the pure corporate governance improvement and engagement goes beyond and is more specific towards those issues. Passive is well equipped to look at the best-in-class model and put it in a wrapper. Yet if we say we want to see the improvement and engage with companies that probably today 
do not have the best ESG rating. This is where obviously we as active have a much bigger role to play because we can engage with corporates to say, okay, how do we get you from an E rating to an A rating? And that obviously is a journey that from an investment and return angle could be potentially very, very interesting and is something we believe obviously only active can deliver at this point. Nick, um, would you agree? Because if you're chucking money in an index, that's it. That's the end of the engagement, isn't it? So I would say as as the market for ESG products develops, I think there'll be a place for both active and passive products. At the passive ends, there's there's a number of ESG data providers out there which can be used in, in a systematic strategy to get exposure to stocks which have good ESG credentials at, at low cost um, in a in a very transparent way. However, the the passive products will always need to hold those companies. So whilst it can select those which have strong ESG characteristics, uh, it can't uh, you know exclude stocks because it doesn't like a particular um, uh, element of its governance model. So and, and that, that's a sort of backward-looking approach. You know, you're talking about companies that already have good ESG credentials or not. Yes. Uh, what about actually bringing about change? I mean, how how does that happen? Yeah, I think ultimately here that there is an argument you could make for passive management and the active community would have to try and defend against it. There's an argument for being active, which the passive has to defend. And this is the strongest argument for the active community. And the the passive uh, are defending it by saying that they're becoming more active. But the reality, as Nick's mentioned, is a passive manager cannot sell a security, which is a big part of the index, regardless of the efforts they might make to make it better on an ESG score. Sonia, how do you see this developing? I think there will be greater differentiation around the level of engagement because, um, as we know, passive, there, there are some claims as well that there would be um, greater engagement around voting at AGMs and, and things like that. Yet, to me, engagement really is sitting down with management to discuss what are the, the weak links in the ESG report. So what are the areas that we are concerned about and what is management doing to address these? And I think that's that's very consistent with, with how we would distinguish between active and passive now. So, you know, you've got you've got low cost systematic exposure to to equities you can take that further and have um, ESG equities that way and then as we also uh, invest vast amounts of time in fundamental research for our active products you can further that with additional ESG research so so I think uh, you know there's 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 space for a broad range of products across the spectrum so from an investor's point of view as well as society's um, uh, needs then having to balance um, the the two different approaches um, and what they're able to um, to deliver we're, we're almost out of time so I'm going to ask um, each of you now to um, think what is it that you'd like to leave in our listeners minds when they're thinking about um, active and passive and this question has um, has passive peaked let me come to Nick first of all so um, I think the the way you fr- you phrase your question is exactly correct it's passive and active not passive versus active and I think uh, that there's that there really is a place in in portfolios for both it's about um, identifying the, the places where you just want very efficient, low-cost exposure to a particular uh, asset class or segment of the market, and then using allocations to active and, and factor products where you want to have the potential to add some value. Marty? We're just entering a, or exiting a period where rates have, have come down and we're starting to see rate rises. Uh, with that, I very strongly believe we'll start to see more credit spread dispersion, uh, which means that this era of beta-like returns, whether it's equities or fixed income, 
is likely to slowly come to an end. And as that comes to an end and as as differentiating between companies becomes that much more important, that's where Active will kick in. Sonia? I think investors really should be prepared for changes in the market backdrop and changes that will unfold for over a long period of time because we have to be realistic that 10 years of unprecedented monetary support will will take a lot of time to normalize. So I think investors would do very well to reassess their current allocation, not only in the context of a more moderate return profile going forward, but in the context of maybe there is too much passive. Where are the areas we feel are the greatest opportunities, not only for active, but in general to to invest in right now. So time for a review. Um, David, finally, um, what will a portfolio of the future look like? Oh, it'll be a combination of active and passive. I I don't see it as a binary thing. Um, But the one message I would leave is, remember, this is a message to any investor, you have a duty of care for the market. And uh, there's a prisoner's dilemma. You know, passive is cheaper. So what what everyone wants is them to be passive, but everybody else to be active to keep the market going. So as much as you might choose some passive, do be cognizant of the fact that the more you move into passive, the more you're creating a risk that you um, disrupt the market that you need to make your investment. There's a symbiosis between the two, perhaps. Indeed. Well, I'm afraid uh, we are out of time now. Uh, Nick King, head of ETF, Sonia Loud, head of equity, Marty Dropkin, head of research and fixed income, and David Buckle, head of investment solutions design at Fidelity. Thank you all, and thank you for listening to what I hope you agree has been a fascinating debate. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and is intended only for the person or entity to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website or the Fidelity SoundCloud or iTunes apps.